0: A friend of mine uh, is somewhat of a blossoming Bible scholar. Um, If you wonder who a person like me goes to when I want to know what to read, I go to my friend Lindsay. Um, Anyways, when Lindsay knew that I was doing this verse-by-verse study, the very first super nerdy question he asked me was, which order of the Bible books are you going to follow? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, a really strong case is being made for, for embracing the Jewish Bible book order. And so he sent me some articles, half of which he had written. Um, uh, and I started to take a look. And the, the basic idea here is... Um, that when Jesus in the New Testament talks about the Scriptures, of course, he's not talking about the book of Romans or the book of Revelation or even the Gospels. He's living out the Gospels present tense, right? So when Jesus refers to the Scriptures, he's primarily referring to what we call as the Old Testament. And without fail, he does it in the traditions of his day, referring to the Scriptures as being in three different parts. And so he refers to the law, the prophets, And the Psalms, which is a broad category that includes the rest of the writings. Now, in our Bibles, we can find all three of those parts. And so we have, uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis uh, through uh, Deuteronomy, which is the Pentateuch. That's what equals the law. And then we have the prophets. Usually that's Isaiah through the rest of the Old Testament. And then we have the five books that make up the writings, uh, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. But we have a fourth section, a section we call History. Okay, that would be first Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Ruth. Okay? The the order and the organization of the Jewish Bible doesn't follow ours. The way it goes is it starts with the law, and then you have two sections of the prophets. The former prophets, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, one book, first and second Kings, one book. Then you have uh, the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, which we call the minor prophets. And then you have the writings, okay? And the writings includes not just Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, uh, but also Ruth, Lamentations, Daniel, and First and Second Chronicles. And the other thing is, not only are they organized different, but the order's a little bit different. And what you discover is you pay attention to the books that they backend after the prophets is they are the most forward-looking books. They are the books of longing. So for example, just to illustrate very quickly, first and second kings and first and second chronicles have a ton of synoptic material a ton of simultaneous events. It tells the same story from two different perspectives. First and 2 Kings focuses on the political side of things. 1 and 2 Chronicles takes the same events but focuses on the spiritual side. It's almost as if 1 and 2 Kings gives us the headlines and 1 and 2 Chronicles gives us the editorial. But 1 and 2 Kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of Israel as it was known, First and Second Chronicles reaches past the Babylonian exile into the summon of Cyrus to bring people back. It's a much more forward-looking book, okay? So what does it mean for us? It means immediately that tonight we're not going to pick up in Ruth, but in Samuel, okay? Uh, we'll refer to Ruth, and we will get there eventually, Lord willing, but we're actually going to pick up in Samuel chapter 1 tonight. Now the reason why Ruth makes sense between Judges and Samuel is because Ruth opens with this phrase in the days of the Judges. Okay, so its setting is during the book of Judges. However, notice with me that when we open up to 1 Samuel, if we didn't know Ruth existed, Samuel makes perfect sense to be the next book. It picks up right where things left off. And so notice here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramtha-im-Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite, okay? Now, if you were with us in the book of Judges last week, we've read this, this system of presenting a new character now multiple times. Always in the area of Ephraim, Always a certain man, and then what comes next is inevitably awful, okay? On top of that, as we'll find out here, this man uh, is from the land of Ephraim. He's an Ephraimite, in other words, that's his geological background, but his genealogical background is he's a Levite, okay? And that ties us to the last two stories of Levites in the land of Ephraim in the book of Judges, which were a mess, Here we see the pattern is broken. Um, But notice here that although we have this certain man, this is really actually a story not about him, but about his wife. Verse two, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay, and so we have a woman who is barren Most likely, this is the reason why her husband has two wives, okay? In the Old Covenant, all of the promises were future-oriented, and so to experience the things that God had for Israel was something that required a legacy. It was something that required children and children's children and children's children, okay? They were awaiting the time when God would fulfill the promises And they were fulfilling their presence in the promises by having kids who would have kids, etc. And so barrenness was seen as being uh, an end of your family line. And an end of a possibility of enjoying the things God had to come. Um, And so, most likely here, this man marries a woman who can father her no children to continue his name, his legacy, his territory in the land, and so he takes a second wife. And the Bible doesn't recommend that. It doesn't recognize that. It's just uh, practicality. This is probably what was going on. Culturally, when we look at non-Israelite nations, this is a relatively normal practice for them at the time. Now, the second thing I want you to notice here is that the story begins with a barren woman. In fact, even when we couple the story with Ruth, because side note on the book of Ruth, Ruth is a beautiful story about a romance between a man and a woman, but that's not the point. Okay? The point is that Boaz is in this lineage, this red line lineage that goes all the way back to Adam that the Bible's slowly been tracing. And after Ruth, it will continue to trace it through King David and then through David's line all the way to Matthew chapter one to Jesus. But there's a problem. Boaz is a bachelor. Okay? And so the story begins not with a certain man named Boaz, but with a certain woman named Naomi who's a widow and whose daughters are widows. Okay? And so here's the point. The book of Ruth is about God solving the problem of the book of Judges. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. But in the days of judges, Ruth tells us, God is already on the scene moving towards a king, specifically David. Simultaneously to that, God is moving towards a barren woman named Hannah to bring us Samuel. Samuel, the prophet who will anoint both Saul and David. Samuel, the final judge who will finally unify Israel around one flag. And judge all of Israel, okay? These are the things that God is doing, but notice where they're happening. They're happening on the edges of society, okay? It's a widow and a barren woman, okay? These are the very fringes of society, the ones that were treated with disdain, who had very little power or influence, and this is where God is moving. This is where God is working, and side note, this is clearly a biblical theme. The Bible is full of barren women that God uses. The Bible is full of widows that are held in high respect. In fact, when we get in chapter 2 to the song of Hannah, it's one of the great inspirations for Mary's response when this young, poor virgin woman is chosen to have by virgin birth the Messiah and she takes the song Of Hannah, and she updates it. She recognizes the significance of that act. It is amazing how often God demonstrates what sometimes theologians call the preferential treatment of the poor. But more importantly, as we'll see in Hannah's song, it shows here that God is capable of raising up from the margins and that he seems to take pleasure in doing so. And so here's this mess we call the book of Judges, and the way that God is going to bring Israel out of it begins with a widow, and it begins with a barren woman, and the barren woman's name is Hannah. Verse 3, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. So he's a regular worshiper. Most likely, the reason he's going up annually is for the pilgrimage feast we read about in the Pentateuch. Okay, notice here he goes to Shiloh, that's where at this time the tabernacle is hosted and he goes and takes his whole family annually. Now notice here it says that he worshipped and sacrificed to the Lord of hosts. Okay, now this is the first time we encounter this phrase in the Bible, but, become, but it becomes a favorite from here on out, especially for Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Malachi who use it extensively. But it occurs for the first time here, and what it literally means is the Lord of Armies. Okay, if you've ever sang Martin Luther's uh, Martin Luther's Psalm uh, or song that we sometimes sing in worship, "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God." There's a line near the end of it that refers to Lord Sabaoth. Okay, that's that's this phrase, the Lord of Hosts. Okay. But it's an interesting thing that this is how God is introduced in the book of Samuel. We would expect a title like this back in the book of Joshua when there's armies and we met the commander of the Lord's armies in Joshua chapter 5. But we are going to see significantly here um, that the Lord of hosts is introduced here because God is on the move in a fresh way. More on that in weeks to come. Okay, so he's uh, going to worship at Shiloh and then it adds halfway through verse three, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. Now we'll come back to that, but in Hebrew writing, always when the setting is given at the very beginning of the story, all the characters are listed very quickly, okay? So Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, we'll come back to. But it says here in verse four, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, and so everybody gets a piece of the fellowship offering, but Hannah, his barren wife, gets a double portion because he loves her so much despite the fact that she hasn't sired him any children. Now that's probably put here to ring a bell, okay? Okay. We're familiar already with a barren wife who has a rival wife, and the barren wife is more loved by the husband, right? It's, it's Rachel and Jacob and Leah all over again. And so he loves his wife. He gives her a double portion at the feast, but verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on, year by year. She's favored by her husband and hated by his other wife, year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So her husband gives her a double portion, but she doesn't engage. For her, this annual gathering is not a time of joy, but a time of deep sadness because of her infertility. Uh, verse 8 elkanah her husband said to her hannah why do you weep and why do you not eat okay let's recognize how rhetorical these questions are he knows in fact he's going to show us he knows in one sense in just a minute and then he's also going to show us he doesn't know at all okay but he says why why year after year do you not engage in the feast why year after year, this time of celebration and joy, why is it a time of weeping for you? And then he finishes, he says, why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And the obvious answer is no. It's a completely different category, right? He, he basically says, aren't I enough to satisfy your desires? Am I not more than ten sons? And obviously he's picking a number out. Now, side note. Interestingly enough, that's how many children are born during the duration of Rachel's barrenness. You remember Rachel has two of the twelve, but before those two are born, the other ten are born. But most likely, it's just a big number. Okay, even for a big Catholic family, it's a big number. Aren't I better than ten? Aren't I better than ten children? He doesn't understand. And as we'll see here, he's not the only one. Verse nine, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And so notice here, she privately goes to the tabernacle, goes to uh, the setup at Shiloh, and she goes there just to pray. And she prays, and she weeps, and she makes a vow. Remember, the vows were laid out in the law, and they were laid out as being possible for men and for women. Okay? And so the vow she makes is, if you open my womb, if you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. If you give me a son, if you remember me and do not forget your servant, then not only will I give him to you, but I'll give him to you all of his days as a Nazarite. Right? That's what it means when it says, no razor shall touch his head. Remember, in the book of Judges, that's what the angel of the Lord commands Manoah's wife for her son Samson. For all his days, he will be devoted to me. No razor will come across his head. But she volunteers that. She vows to give this son back to the Lord. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Now, ponder that phrase for a second. Get the picture here. Here he's sitting at the entrance of the tabernacle, and this woman comes in. She's clearly, very emotional, distraught, and although he can't hear her from where he's sitting, He can see that her mouth is moving continuously. This is the perception that he makes, verse 14. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you, okay? And so he sees her mouth moving, but he doesn't see her heart at all, and he goes, she's clearly had too much to drink, okay? She's babbling, but he's wrong. And Hannah responds in verse 15, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now this is an interesting thing because Eli's first appearance in the story is is far uh, far from a positive review. Right? He just rashly assumes that this woman is intoxicated and basically just tries to drive her out of the place. Despite his uh, blindness, he speaks to her very positively once he figures out what's going on. Uh, and he just says, he basically says, go in peace and may God grant your petition. May God answer your prayers. In other words, he adds an an amen to her prayer. Let it be. Let it be so. Now, I want you to notice how she responds. Verse 18, she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Recognize this is a break in the pattern, right? But it's not a break in the pattern because she has a baby. It's a break in the pattern because she takes the words of Eli as being a blessing, as being a response from the Lord. Now, there is a element of the priesthood that involves this. The priests were to represent God unto the people. Now, Eli is a mess, as we'll see. His family is a mess, but one of the surprising things we'll see is, uh, is how God uses the priest It reminds me of another time when the priesthood gets completely off the rails, and that time it's during the days of Jesus and the early beginnings of Christianity. And we're told that the high priest Caiaphas says effectively, it's a good idea, it's reasonable, it's better that one man should die for the sake of the people. In other words, what he's thinking is, look, if Jesus keeps talking the way he's talking, Rome is going to throw a foot. Uh, throw a fit, and they're not just going to attack Jesus, they're going to crush Israel, because it's going to sound like rebellion. But the author, I believe it's Luke, lets us in on a little secret and basically says, Caiaphas didn't understand the significance of his words, but because of his role as high priest, he was prophesying the reality that one would die for the people, okay, not in the way that he thought. It's one of the tensions of this story that We have people who don't deserve their position, and especially with his sons, even take advantage of their position, and they will get what's coming to them. There are consequences, but God also uses them. And so she responds with hope. Feeling like God has heard her prayers, she washes her face, she eats, she's no longer sad. Then the whole family, verse 19, rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, that phrase for remembered, we always have to remember in Hebrew idiom, means more than just a reminder of something you forgot. The idea here obviously is not that the Lord went, oh, I had completely meant to send you a son, Hannah, but I, I just forgot to put the postage stamp on it, right? That's not the idea here. Remembered is a intervention term. It consistently speaks of when God again takes action. So one of the first places we hear about it is in the book of Genesis when Noah has built this ark. And the earth, it's been raining for 40 days and 40 nights. And the ark is floating on the storm. And it does so for a long duration of time. And then it says, and the Lord remembered Noah. Once again, not emphasizing that for that whole period of time, God had gotten distracted with something else. But here he began to act on Noah's behalf again. And so here he acts on behalf of Hannah's prayers. He remembered her in verse 20 in due time. Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. Now, how we get from asked him from the Lord to Samuel is actually a little bit interesting because Samuel's name doesn't really parse out to this very well, although Saul, which is a very close version to Samuel in the Hebrew, they're very close, that actually is the word heard or, or to, uh, to give into." Okay, Um, but the best suggestion on how we get I've heard from the Lord out of Samuel is an acrostic. Okay, when you take the phrase I've heard from the Lord and you write it out three words in a row, it basically spells Samuel phonetically this way. But nonetheless, the idea here is that she names him in response to the fact that God has heard her prayers. And so here is this young baby named Samuel, not just an answer to Hannah's prayers, but to some degree in answer to Israel's, and definitely a part of God's plan. So verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord his yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. So notice Elkanah was also a vow maker, somebody who regularly made vows before the Lord and paid them. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. He says first, First, let me finish nursing Samuel, uh, probably two to three years. And then when we take him to the annual pilgrimage, we will leave him and he will live at the temple with the priesthood, just as I promised. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Now, the Septuagint here says something a little bit different. It actually says, only keep your word to the Lord. In other words, Elkanah's concern here is don't forget your vow, Hannah. Don't neglect your vow. Vows are a big deal. You said you would give him, just make sure that you do it. And that's a good reading, but the Masoretic text, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have, instead say only may God keep his word. Um, But either way here, he allows her to stay home for a couple of years And then verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Once again, probably very young, um, younger than five. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And so she comes and she presents him. She explains all the things that Eli didn't see, right? She didn't tell him what her prayers were, just that that's what she was doing, that she was anxious and and laying her uh, needs before the Lord, and she says, God has answered my prayers and in response, I am lending my son to him for all of his days. And then here in, uh, in chapter 2, we get Hannah's recorded prayer. Now, I want you to notice thematically what's going on in this prayer because it's significant. She's not just going to say, God, thank you that you have given me a baby. She's going to say, God, thank you that you are this type of God. And so listen to what she prays here. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So she begins just with uh, full body worship. Her heart, her strength, her mouth, everything is praising God in his goodness and in his salvation. And then verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. So she praises God for his uniqueness. that there's no other in comparison. And then verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now notice who she's addressing here changes. Okay? Here she's speaking to people, specifically the proud. And she says, don't forget that God knows. Don't forget that God judges. And then notice this. Over and over again, she's going to make a contrast. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Okay, so as we read this, notice there's two columns, and they're not stable columns. They're columns that are moving in opposite directions. And so the hungry are being fed and the full are lending themselves out, becoming daily workers just to earn their bread. Uh, the mighty are broken, but the weak are strengthened. Okay. She continues here, uh, verse, uh, verse 5, halfway through, says, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children... Is forlorn. Okay, that's the one that's the most personal to her own petition. She continues, verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Okay, and so first we see this audience all in transition, moving in surprising directions. And then second, we see that the actor of exaltation and humbling is God himself. And so he's the one who kills and then amazingly here it says brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. In other words, she praises God for his sovereignty. She recognizes that what's happened here isn't a statistical odd- oddity. And although it's clearly in one sense a miracle, in a larger sense it's coinciding with the reality of a sovereign God. That God has acted on their on her behalf. Okay, now notice as she moves on here, again, we see that preferential treatment of the poor, of the weak, of the lowly. Verse eight, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Okay, and so he's sovereign, he controls all things. And what does he do with that sovereignty? He takes the most lowly and brings them up to positions of power and of privilege. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Okay, And so, in contrast to the faithful, who it's assumed here are weak and poor and on the fringes, are the adversaries of the Lord, who are in power because they've, you know, got there red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson would say. They've got there with all of their power and flex of muscle and all of their might. But not by might shall man prevail, she says. They'll be broken to pieces. He will be a faithful judge. And then, notice the last. Two lines here, he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now think about that for a second. Right now, who is the king of Israel? There isn't one. There isn't even necessarily plans for one. It's another seven chapters and most of Samuel's childhood before Israel is finally going to come to Samuel before the Lord and say, We want a king like other nations. But somehow, By God's divine insight, Hannah sees down the pipe of what God is going to do, and it involves a king, and then when she uses the word for anointed there, that's Messiah. In fact, that's Samuel's role. He's the anointer of kings, okay? What Samuel does verbally, I'm using that word incorrectly, but I think you know what I mean. I mean a verb. What Samuel does verbally is anoint Saul is king, and then anoint David is king. But they, nounally, yeah, that's good, uh, they are the anointed, okay? And so when it speaks in the Bible, especially in the prophets, of the anointed one, it's this word, Messiah, okay? The word in the New Testament translated Christ. And so what's fascinating here is not only does she understand God's character, Not only does she see God's act in where he's going, basically she starts to see, she pulls back the curtain a little bit and understands a little bit of Samuel's role, of Samuel's life, of where Israel's history is headed in the next generation. But significantly, when we get to the book of Luke, we seem to find the fulfillment of this. And this time, it's not a widow who God exalts. It's not a barren woman who God uses It's a young virgin who will conceive and bear a child. And so the connections here between this song and what we call the Magnificat of Mary are very strong, intentionally so, because this is what God is doing. This is what God is about. This is where he is going. Okay? So verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And so he becomes a very young intern of Eli, the high priest. Now I want you to think about something here. Think about the fact that this family we've just observed is surprisingly different than the families we encountered at the end of the book of Judges. Okay? We see vows, but they're good vows, right? No Jephthah vow here. No offering my daughter on the altar as if that's what God wanted, but offering my son to serve before the altar. A Nazarite vow, but one that's actually going to be kept, right? A family who's faithfully worshiping at Shiloh and not, you know, some other place. But as much as there's a contrast between the family life we see in the book of Judges and this unique little family here, Unfortunately, we're also going to see a contrast between their family and Eli's, okay? And so, verse 12, now the sons of Eli, remember we heard their names in chapter 1, Hophni and Phineas. the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now, there's a repetition there that you may not have caught. Do you remember what Hannah tells Eli when he mistakes her for drunkenness? She says, don't mistake me for a worthless woman, It's literally a daughter of Belial, okay? And Belial seems to involve this idea of complete waste, of devaluation, of uh, a total um, unnecessary expense, okay? A worthless woman. But the narrator says, actually, Eli's sons, who are operating as priests, that's exactly what they are. In fact, look at what it says next. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Let that sink in. This is is vice priest one and two. This is high priest junior and high priest junior two, high priest the second, right? They're actively serving in the temple for a God they do not personally know. Now, unfortunately, that's not a terribly uncommon thing. That's something we're going to see that plagues Israel's history. And so Jeremiah, especially, and a couple of the minor prophets will speak of the shepherds of Israel and how they're a terrible problem, a terrible plague on Israel. But all the way back here, this is what we see. In fact, Jesus says something similar about the religious leaders of his day. Remember, he says that the Pharisees devoured widows' houses, and made a pretense by their long prayers. That they were whitewashed tombs. And inside they were just sepulchers. Tombs of, of filled with the bones of men. Jesus speaks all of these woes over the religious leaders of his day. And yet they're the ones who were expected and respected. For being the righteous upper echelon of Israel. Remember that the priesthood was not something that was achieved, it was by family. Eli received this because his father was high priest. In fact, Hophni and Phinehas, or uh, not Hophni and Phinehas, is that right? Yeah. Uh, they're in line for the next role in Israel. But one of the things that I think is really important to notice about this story, because we know a little bit in our own day, Right? about questionable priesthood, about leaders in ministry, about people who identify themselves as being ministers of God and are clearly something else. What I want you to notice very clearly tonight is that God sees that and God cares. In fact, remember Hannah's prayer. God weighs the wicked. And so notice here, this is what they were doing. Verse 13, the custom of the priest with the people was that any man who offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came. Now, this is relatively close to exactly what Leviticus says is supposed to happen. That for all of the sacrifices except for the burnt offering which is completely consumed on the altar the levites were given a portion okay but that portion had relatively controlled restraints okay and so what it says here is you just come to the pot after it's boiling after the sacrifice has been made you stick in stick in your fork whatever you bring up that's your portion but notice what it says here in verse 15 Moreover before the fat was burned the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing give meat for the priest to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw okay now two things here one we have a breaking of order okay sacrifice first portion second and second we have a breaking because it says here that they were taking a portion while the fat was still there in all of the levitical sacrifices All of the fat was God's portion and God's alone, okay? In other words, what's going on here, both with their fork practice and with their roasting practice, is they're basically just fleecing the congregation. They were to be taken care of by the church, but now they're profiting by it. In fact, we're going to find out next week that Eli, their father, is a heavy man. Unfortunately, this is probably how he got to be so heavy, okay? because they 've been gluttonously taking advantage of the people of Israel, now, many Levitical scholars believe that the provision for the priests of the food was not merely because, like Paul says in First Corinthians we shouldn 't muzzle an ox when it t- treads out the grain, that, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, a laborer is worthy of his wages, not just because they have to eat and they 're serving for the sake of all Israel. But also, many scholars believe that there was a significant part the priest played in showing that the sacrifice was accepted by their personal partaking of it. Now, that's just a theory. But even if it's just a theory, recognize the skewed image these people are getting of God by the people who represent it. And what's so mind-blowing about this is your average Israelite looks at that behavior and goes, that's not right. Remember, one of the roles of the Levitical priesthood was to teach Israel the ways of the Lord. But these priests need to be taught. Okay? And so, verse 16, the man said to him, let them burn, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. And he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. They threaten them. They're running a racket. That's what's going on. Okay. Now, side note. What family was Samuel just put in the care of? Who is he being raised by? This one. Okay, verse 16, uh, 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. God sees this and he hates it. When people look at the wretched awfulness in the church, the true and valid hypocrisy, when they see the scandal and the embezzlement and all of the horrible things that they find just under the veneer of religion, and they respond in anger, that's the right response. That's God's response. God cares about these things. He sees those things. Remember, we see Jesus angry only a couple of times. But only once do we see him so angry that we find premeditated action, okay? And so we see him angry and he says, you know, oh, uh, unbelieving generation, how long will I put up with you, right? We see him overwhelmed by just the uh, lack of faith in Israel. We see him responding in anger, especially in the book of Mark. But only once in Jesus's career do we see him so angry That he sits down and makes himself a whip and does something about it. And in John it tells us that the disciples were watching Jesus driving these market people out of the temple, and they remembered what it was what said in the Old Testament: Zeal for your house has eaten me up, O Lord. But Jesus' words, according to the book of Luke, he says, God desires this house to be a house of prayer for all nations and you have made it a den of robbers. Quoting from the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is one of the great critiquers of the unfaithful priesthood. In other words, he says the whole purpose of this is so that everyone, even foreigners, can come and meet with God, and you've made it a place where they're fleeced instead. God cares about these things. Jesus cares about these things. And so... Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And so notice, notice here, this isn't just something that happens. It happens just like Eli spoke blessing over them. That's another thing that the priest would do. Take what it says in Numbers 6, something that we know by the days of Jesus was regularly spoken by the priests when they would come out, uh, come out from offering the sacrifices and would address the people. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Right? And so here he speaks, and what does he say? May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And he does. Two more sons and three daughters. Making not the ten sons that would be better than her husband, but six children nonetheless. Now, in contrast, verse 22, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay? So there were these women. We, f- we find them all the way back in the book of Numbers who were serving at the tabernacle in, in um, actually unknown ways. We don't know what ways. We can guess a lot of ways. C- cleaning utensils, helping move things around, um, taking care of the women who came to offer sacrifices, ministering to them. We don't know. But either way, these are co-ministers with the priests. In fact, some scholars suggest that this is actually what a Nazarite vow was for, that Nazarites were temporary tabernacle or later temple servants. And before they could do that, they would take this vow. So these are women who have set time aside to serve God and the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are sleeping with them. Okay, they're having sex with them. Now, once again, outside of Israel... This isn't that unsurprising of a of a of a prospect. Many of the ancient uh, methods of worship in the area of Canaan involved temple prostitution, but not Israel. And here's the worst part: it says that Eli was hearing these things. Present tense has been hearing them for a while. Okay, not he heard about them; he's been hearing about them. Okay, verse 23. He said to them. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And so, on the one hand, Eli warns them. He says you're playing with fire. In fact, we know something about high priest sons who are playing with fire, don't we? Remember back in the in the very beginning on the first day that the tabernacle is open for business and the sons of the high priest run in and offer strange fire and they struck dead. There's similarities here. But it's disturbing, isn't it, that it doesn't go any further than that? That he warns them and leaves them in office? It tells us here that they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So, in the background, judgment is coming. They're already hardened, they're they're on a path to consequence. And as we'll see, so is Eli. But he's clearly a failure of a father, he's clearly a failure of a high priest. And he's clearly culpable for what's going on in the temple that he is running in Shiloh. Now we jump back to Samuel. In contrast, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Now we find an echo of that, just side note, in the book of Luke. Very similar phraseology about Jesus. After he uh, gets lost in Jerusalem and his parents come looking and they say, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house doing my father's business the next summary statement for the rest of Jesus' childhood is almost this word for word, that he continued to grow in wisdom and stature with the Lord and with people. Okay. And so here's Samuel in this environment, but he's growing up differently. He's growing up in a different direction. Verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus the Lord has said. Okay. That's the language of a prophet. right? In fact, man of God is the most common name of the most prophets, okay? We have prophets that are given names like Jeremiah. But throughout the history of Israel, we saw this in the book of Judges too, there are unnamed prophets who just show up and speak God's message and then disappear off the pages of Scripture. And so notice here that God begins judgment by warning. And this is relatively consistent. This is the whole purpose of the prophets at large is to tell Israel to turn back. The way you're headed is towards destruction. In fact, it tells, us, uh, it tells us in the book of Chronicles, remember I told you that's the spiritual retelling of the history of Israel, that God never left himself without a witness and sent his prophets one after another to continuously warn them of the judgment to come. And so this prophet comes and he says, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. In other words, haven't I chosen the Levites to serve at the temple, to offer the sacrifices, to teach Israel? Aren't I the one who elected you, who chose you, who gave you this role? Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choice part of every offering of my people? See, I told you earlier, or, or earlier that we're going to find out that Eli was a heavy man. Here, the prophet directly accuses him of not just allowing his sons to take the best portions, but eating of them himself. Okay. And notice what it says. The reason he did it is because he honored his sons more than the Lord. Okay. Now maybe that's just 101 fear of man. He doesn't want to make a stink in his family. Have you been there before? Have you ever bit your tongue because it's Thanksgiving and you don't want to have a row? Right? But this becomes the continuum and the perpetual place. He would rather the respect of his children than the respect of the Lord. I will tell you as a parent personally, that is an actual issue. That's not an Eli problem. That's a parent problem. Every parent has to risk being liked to be a good parent at one point or another. But we need to recognize that God, like Eli, has given us a calling as parents to instruct our children and to train them up in the Lord. We have a part to play. And it's an act we do, an act of worship, and Eli is failing in it. Okay, verse 30, therefore, here's the judgment, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and go out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me will I honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Okay, and so notice what it's saying here. He's saying your descendants, none of them are gonna live into old age. And that's not just a longevity of life thing. Recognize that that's a cultural place of significance, right? The elders were the ones who were respected and honored and had influence in their tribe and among all the tribes, but not for Eli's line anymore. They won't live to see the day where they lead. Okay. And so it continues here. It says in verse 32, then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. It's not a pretty picture here. Now, clearly just notice something very quickly with me. Clearly, this is a sovereign act of judgment with generational consequences, but also recognize that it, it aligns itself with what sometimes theologians call God's passive wrath. Okay? So, active wrath, where God's judgment just actually does something. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? It's got permanence to it. Think the great white throne of the book of Revelation. But when we talk about passive wrath, we're thinking of what it says in Romans chapter 1, where they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, therefore God gave them over. Okay? It's still an act of God, but it's a passive act. It's an allowing, it's a letting. In fact, it's very significantly what we, what we saw in the book of Judges. There's consequences to sin. Paul says in the book of Galatians, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. Notice that the metaphor there implies a natural consequence. You sow pumpkin seeds, you get pumpkins. You sow thorns, you get thorns, okay? And so there seems to be even here a consequential relationship because remember the parent that Eli is or the grandparent that Eli is because he and his sons are dead, spoiler, uh, that, that has legs. It's going to walk. It's going to continue, Okay. Uh, But nonetheless, this is the judgment that's coming in verse 34, and this shall come to pass upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Now, there's one more echo I want to touch on really quickly, because we've got all the pieces here. Samuel comes from nothing, and God raises up. Eli comes from a different place and God sets down, it's amazing how many similarities there are between Samuel and David and Eli and Saul. In fact, we see the two consequences here for Eli is the end of his lineage and the end of his life. And those are the two consequences that come upon Saul as well. Okay, there's, there's echoes here. But here, they're all three going to die on the same day. Verse 35, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I'll build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. There's that term again, my anointed. Now, high priests were also anointed, but here it seems like it's talking about a high priest who will serve the anointed. Now, We're going to find out what this lineage is after Eli passes away. There will be a new lineage of high priests who will serve alongside David for the rest of the duration of Israel's history, okay? Um, But here it's just mentioned that God's going to do this. Verse 36, everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please put me in one of the priest places that I might eat a morsel of bread. Okay, so there's going to be consequences. Now notice once again, these are the things now in the opening of chapter 3 that Eli knows. He knows what his sons are doing. He knows through this prophet that judgment is coming. He even knows that his sons are going to die on a single day. Okay. The reason that's important is because chapter 3 is going to bring these things up again. It's helpful to keep in mind that he already knows. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli... Do you feel the tension in that sentence? Eli is his mentor. Eli, who's Hophni and Phinehas' father. Eli, whose priesthood and lineage has been forsaken. Samuel is growing up under him. Okay. Uh, and then notice what it says next. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. Okay. Prophecy was not very common visions of what God was doing, the things that they read about in their history in the times of Joshua and of Moses were rare. Verse two, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Okay, so here in the holy place, near there, Samuel's laying very close to there and it says that the time... The lamp has not yet gone, on, gone out. That means just before sunrise, okay? If you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus or maybe Exodus, it talks about the fact that the lamps were to be lit through the night, okay? And so the candles then were measured to last. And it's just about dawn, okay? And then what happens in verse four, the Lord called to Samuel and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. He said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. So he hears this voice calling his name. And he assumes it's Eli who, you know, it's the middle of the night. He can't see very well. And so he just jumps up, runs over, probably wakes him up and says, you called me. He says, no, I didn't. Go back to sleep. And then again, verse 4, the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Uh, Sorry, verse 6. The Lord called Samuel again. Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, there's a reason why he didn't recognize the Lord speaking. Okay. Verse 8, the Lord called to Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. It takes three times before he goes... Maybe I'm not the one calling you, but you are being called. And so he says here in verse 9, Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now I want you to notice something right here. I had the opportunity once to teach uh, at a parenting conference, but not for the parents, for the children. And this was my text. And I just thought it was the best text uh, that they had assigned me to talk about parenthood. Because all of the yabbits that usually come up in a junior high setting, all of the yabbits that come up for us as children of failing and failure parents are dealt with here. There is no getting away from the fact that Eli pays an important part in Samuel hearing from the Lord. Not because he speaks for God, but because he points out that God is the one who is speaking. You see, there's this significance of parenthood that is so important to God that he actually calls us all of us, to honor our father and mother, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's another thing that Jesus criticized the religious elite for. He said, why do you despise the commandments of God and replace them with the traditions of men? So you take what you owe your parents in their old age, right, taking care of them when they're elderly, and you say, I've made it Corbin. I give it to God instead. He says that doesn't make any sense, Right? He, in fact, Paul's words, just a side note, uh, in the pastoral epistles when he says he who does not take care of or provide for his family is worse than a Gentile, he says that speaking of children with elderly parents. Okay. It's a significant thing. Uh, and so here Eli learns from a bad parent. And it's part of the story. In fact, I would argue—I don't know what to do with it except point out that it's clearly there. I would argue that's intentionally woven into the story. Why else have we been jumping back and forth from from tender young shoot Samuel to evil and wicked Hophni and Phineas, and the results and response? Uh, you know, the results being in Eli's lap, and yet here he plays a significant part. It's similar to what Jesus says when he's speaking and he says, if your parents being evil give you a sandwich when you ask for it and not a rock, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? He recognizes the potential evil of all human beings means the potential evil of all parents. But he also recognizes a true parental heart, a true parental reality. And so I would add here a true parental responsibility. One that God honors. Now, we've got two things in tension here that I think are worth pointing out. On the one side, we have the abuse of power. On the other hand, we have the respect of office. Do you see how they coexist? And they don't coexist in a way where God excuses and says, look, the priesthood is fine because it's important what they're doing, so let them take advantage of it. Let them, no way. But at the same time, There is this reality that Eli's function functions despite the man. I think as modern Americans, we are terrible at maintaining this tension. I think we like to categorize things as being black or white because it makes life simpler. But there's no removing the fact from here uh, that this is going on. And so here's what I would suggest to you. Because we know that God appoints who he appoints and raises up who he raises up and allows to have power who he has power because he's sovereign. Because we also know that God is a faithful judge who will bring all things into account. We are freed up. We are freed up to be faithful and serve those who are put in positions of authority over us that doesn't justify abuse. In fact, the way that often the way that we should be faithful in experiencing abuse is reporting it to other authorities because no authority in our life save one is ultimate. If you're a spouse in an abusive marriage, it is faithfulness to call the cops. It is faithfulness to tell your pastor In fact, that's one of the places Eli fails by not putting abuse to an end. When churches try and cover up things, that's not on God's behalf. That's not something God is interested in. God is capable of redeeming the worst of our sinful behaviors. But confession and repentance is always what that looks like. Not hiding and forgetting and leaving in the darkness. That's what Jesus condemned humanity for. He said, I came to save the world, not condemn it, but the world is already condemned, and this is their condemnation, that the light has come, but they loved darkness rather than the light. They hid. But when we understand that God is a true and faithful judge, we can be like Daniel who we've been reading about in the, uh, in, on Sunday mornings, who consistently serves the king and the king of kings. And that leads him to confront the king. It leads him to pray for the king. It leads him to love the king. It leads him to serve the king. But he navigates this tension. Okay. Let's finish the story. So... He says, Samuel, next time, I want you to respond, but don't respond to me. I think the Lord is speaking to you, so I just want you to speak to the Lord and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Verse 10, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Okay? It's juicy. It's juicy. That's the idea here. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. I don't remember the author's name, um, but it's part of the Harvard uh, five-foot shelf of knowledge, and that's what I'm reading through right now, so i encountered it. But it's this big discussion on, on aesthetics, on what is beautiful. And he argues in it that one of the things that is most beautiful to humanity is tragedy, as long as we know we're safe from it. Okay? That's why we like dramatic television or the tragedies of Shakespeare, or the Greek tragedies. And he says something that we can't test today, so I don't know, it sounds weird to me, but he says it doesn't matter how good the play is, if the audience hears there's a hanging going on down the street, they'll all leave the theater. And that sounds weird to me, but the more I thought about it, I actually don't know how I'd respond. Like, is it unsympathetic to stay in the theater when you know there's a hanging? I have no idea. But, but the point is here, similar to here, right? God says, I'm about to do something that everybody is going to talk about. Something that's so significant out of the ordinary that everyone's two ears will tingle. Not just one of them, both of them. Verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now, we're not told anywhere that the Levites, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, were speaking horrible things about God. Their blasphemy is an acted-out blasphemy because they wear the ephod, because they look like and pose as and were even called as representatives of God, and so their behavior becomes blasphemous, okay, because it misrepresents God. And so he lays this all out and then he did not restrain them. Verse 14, therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, it's too late. Judgment is so immediate. It's coming so quickly. There's no chance of sacrifice. Now, the law, the Pentateuch, makes a difference between sins and what it calls high-handed sins. And high-handed sins can't be dealt with through sacrifice you can't intentionally be Alibaba the leader or actually he's not the leader you can't lead the 40 thieves from Alibaba and the 40 thieves and then just cover it up by making sure you do your weekly sacrifices right that's basically what their whole priesthood has been it's been going through the motions but no reality and so it's too late for reality now now notice this, this is Samuel's first prophecy and he's got to come to his mentor, Eli, the one who he's serving under, and say, It's all over for you, buddy. It's kind of intense. It will not be the last time Samuel has to bring bad news, even for people he cares about. In fact, he comes really close to not wanting to tell Saul what's up because he cares for Saul. And here we see the same thing play out with Eli. And so verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And so he says, look, I know you're afraid, but don't keep it from me. And he says, If you keep it from me, may God do to you what he planned on doing to me. Now, even there, notice, Eli knows what's coming. But there is something I think that's appropriate here, which is basically not just that a prophet speaks for God, but the audience wants the prophet to speak for God, right? Even though he knows it's it's going to be a one-two punch, right? And this is part of Samuel's training. He can't be afraid of Eli or anyone else if he's going to speak For the Lord, okay? So, verse 18, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he, Eli, said, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, I don't know if that's humble reservation to consequences or if it's just indifference. I wish I could tell you, but Eli's not that type of character. There's no clarity here. We definitely don't see significant repentance here. We see surrender maybe, but I'm not sure it's a good surrender. And so, verse 19, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, everything he said would come to pass. He here becomes a prophet in Israel. Now, the prophets uh, have existed. These men of God have existed, but the school of the prophets begins pretty appropriately with Samuel. These are the ones that are going to coincide with the kings and speak for him. In fact, in Chronicles, it tells us that the baseline uh, resources that make up the stories of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicle are the writings of Samuel, the writings of Nathan, you remember him from the days of David, and the writings of Gad. Okay? And so they become the historians of Israel. They work for God on behalf of the king to hold the king in account and speak for God. And we'll see this role throughout all of Israel's history, right? It's Jeremiah who stands before the king. It's Isaiah who confronts the kings, okay? But it begins here with Samuel. So verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That's actually really encouraging, okay? From Dan to Beersheba is from north to south. The whole land knew of Samuel, That's going to be significant for next week. And then verse 21, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Okay? And so God has raised up the son of this barren woman, Samuel, to move Israel forward in his history, to be faithful to the promises that he's laid out. But as he's doing so, he's also laying low those who are at the top of Israel, who are in the way of what he wants to do because they have uh, taken advantage of their power. I cannot tell you how often this pattern repeats throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's one of the great complaints that God will make through the prophets about latter Israel, the kings that follow David, is that they're behaving effectively like Eli, but he's going to raise up a true shepherd a new shepherd who's going to set things right. We'll close with this because I think it's really interesting. We've talked a few times. In fact, we talked last week in the end of Judges about typology, this idea that God encoded into history pictures that tell the future, okay? And so the tabernacle was designed according to the plans, these heavenly plans, but they were designed according to the plans the author of Hebrews tells us to show us who Jesus is. Okay. And so there's the types and then the archetype, which is almost always, with possibly one exception, Jesus. Okay. Um, let's see if I can remember his name. There's an Australian author, oh, it's Graham Goldsworthy, there we go, Graham Goldsworthy, who suggests another type of topology. Which he calls lower T typology. So there's the capital T types, and then there's lower T typology. And what he means about that significantly is there is this, almost like when you throw a rock in a lake, these ripples that flow through the Bible as history repeats itself. But it's not like it was in the book of Judges. It's not just going around the merry-go-round, it's not some Eastern idea of history repeating itself. It's amplifying until it gets to the reality. And he has this diagram in one place that I just love. And what he shows is that when you follow the prophets, starting with Samuel, they begin to point forward and the way that they look at Israel and what's coming for Israel, you can paint it like this. It's just a line going up. It's an escalation, bigger kingdom, greater thing that God's going to do. And then you get to Solomon, David's son, and the real life historical kingdom of Israel starts to do this. But the prophetic expectation keeps going. It keeps escalating. there's a sense in the old testament where where there's this recognition that everything god has promised is still yet to come but there's these lower t typical reiterations of it over and over again which culminates once again not in the words of hannah because of her son samuel but in the words of mary because of her son jesus he's the true anointed one he's the great high priest he's the king of kings and the lord of lords he's the true prophet The prophet that Moses prophesied of. Everything points to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest and we look at the world we live in, it's easy to see a whole lot more Eli's than we do Samuel's. And even when we look at our own life, Lord, we find almost both genealogies flowing through our blood. But I pray, Lord, that you would train us to be a servant like Samuel, that our general attitude before you would be speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I pray, Lord, that we would be like Hannah, that we would identify ourselves as your servant and would surrender our desires to see your plan accomplished and would praise and worship the God who can use anybody from the margins, because you're the God at the center, who can use anyone in weakness because you are the God of all power, and can use anyone who is nothing in the world's eyes because you are the God of glory, and you give to whomever you will. I pray, Lord, that our life would be fruitful like Samuel's that it would be part of your plan moving forward, that we would see your kingdom come in our lives, that we would dedicate the best of our lives, including our children and our offspring, to your kingdom. Because we know, Lord, as Hannah understood, that there is no other God like you, no God who's sovereign like you, no God who's good like you, no God who loves like you no God who is worthy of praise, but you and you alone. And so we pray in your name, Jesus, amen. Amen, have a good night.